Welcome to Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures. In this episode, I will discuss Laura Layton's character on Melrose Place, Sydney Andrews. Sydney is cut from the same cloth as last week's heroine, Kitty March, played by Joan Bennett. She moons and swoons over her sister's soon-to-be ex-husband, Michael Mancini, the same way Kitty melted in the arms of Johnny Prince, the pimp ne'er-do-well played by Dan Durier. Sydney is the love-to-hate brand of soap queen that is the stuff of daytime and primetime legend. This particular femme fatale came with a large dose of Americana, thanks to the show's producer, Aaron Spelling. Now, if you don't know about the Spelling universe, I will give you a crash course now. Aaron Spelling started as a writer. He wrote for The Big Valley, a Western TV show starring Barbara Stanwyck that ran from 1965 to 1969. It was Stanwyck who liked and recommended him around town, in effect, giving him the hand up he needed. Coincidentally, the costume designer who worked with Spelling on some of his most iconic shows and designed his daughter Tori Spelling's prom dress was Nolan Miller. Miller was Stanwyck's florist. She is the one who recommended him as a costume designer. She is an absolute queen of the Hollywood dream. The television shows produced by Spelling include Charlie's Angels, 1976 to 1981, The Love Boat, 1977 to 1986, Heart to Heart, 1979 to 1984. This is a great show. It is in the same vein as Remington Steel. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Dynasty, 1981 to 1989, 90210, 1990 to 2000. Melrose Place, 1992 to 1999. Seventh Heaven, 1996 to 2007. And Charmed, 1998 to 2006. There are many more TV shows he was a producer on that don't make the initial list, like T.J. Hooker, starring his favorite actress, Heather Locklear, who would later appear on Dynasty and Melrose Place and a short-lived 1997 show, Pacific Palisades. Spelling appeared as an actor on the 1967-1970 show Dragnet, the show that inspired the entire Dick Wolf Law & Order franchise and many others that built American television. Spelling is a legend. This list covers most of my lifetime. I 100% grew up not just watching Spelling TV, but learning about the world from it. 90210 shaped my understanding of Los Angeles, and Melrose Place, because the cast was older and I was young when it first aired, influenced my understanding of adulthood. To the point where even now, when I am on Melrose, I feel like a real grown-up. Melrose Place was a spin-off of 90210. Kelly was dating, or more accurately, sleeping with her mother's handyman, Jake. Kelly fell for Jake and started showing up at his apartment complex on Melrose Place. The famous Spanish-style apartment complex with a pool and a view of the hills. 
this little foray into a team dream crush turned into its own show, Melrose Place, which later spun off into Models, Inc., which Spelling also produced. Models, Inc. started and ended in 1994. It only had one season, but it was the third show of the 90210 franchise, quite an accomplishment and an unquantifiably influential set of television shows. Melrose Place is packed with great characters, played by exceptionally influential TV actors. The show borrowed talent from daytime soaps, including Lisa Rinna, who joined the cast in season five to play Taylor McBride, straight from her role as Billy Reed on Days of Our Lives. Another Days regular that graced Melrose was Christiane Alfonso, who plays Lauren Etheridge, Hollywood Madam on Melrose. Two key season one characters who didn't make it to season two are Sandy Harling and Rhonda Blair. Harling was played by Amy Locaine, who starred as Allison Williams in John Waters' 1990 film Crybaby. Locaine was convicted of vehicular manslaughter in real life in 2010, which I only mention because the subject of vehicular manslaughter plays a large role in multiple Melrose Place storylines. Locaine's role on Melrose is the hot blonde who works at Shooter's, the local bar where the gang hangs out. Shooter's is kind of like the peach pit of Melrose Place. Vanessa Williams starred as Rhonda Blair, the young dance teacher with dreams. Her character was cut short, leaving her best friend on the show, Matt Fielding, played by Doug Savant, out of a friend, and the show lacking a star. That's where Heather Locklear's character, Amanda Woodward, came in. Billed as a perpetual guest star, Spelling brought on Locklear to spice things up, which she most definitely did. Marsha Cross played Kimberly Shaw, the doctor who became the mistress and then wife of Michael Mancini, Jane's husband and Sidney's brother-in-law, played by Thomas Calabro. Cross went on to play the iconic Brie Vandekamp on Desperate Housewives, which ran from 2004 to 2012. Jane Mancini was played by Josie Bissett. Calabro and Bassett made appearances in the 2009 Melrose Place reboot, in addition to many other television and film roles. The intended lead of the original Melrose Place was Allison Parker, played by Courtney Thorne-Smith. Allison was the relatable, normal character, but didn't feel that relatable to me as a viewer until her sexual assault and subsequent alcoholism. She also dealt with the stalker, a prescient storyline for the time given the country's first stalking laws hit the books in California in the early 1990s. Thorne Smith later played the role of Georgia Thomas on Allie McBeal alongside Diane Cannon, who as previously discussed in the second episode of my two-part Diane Cannon series, worked closely with Rebecca Schaefer. Schaefer's murder was what led to stalking laws in California and eventually the whole country. Allison Parker's roommate and later boyfriend, Billy Campbell, is played by Andrew Shue, brother of Elizabeth Shue, who played the babysitter in the 1987 film Adventures in Babysitting. 
Her character, Chris Parker, wore a spectacular menswear camel overcoat in that movie that influenced the overcoat worn by Alicia Silverstone in the 1993 Aerosmith video, Cryin'. Joe Reynolds, played by Daphne Zuniga, was the New York City girl who came to sunny L.A. to escape her alcoholic ex-husband. That storyline is teased out over time. He eventually finds Joe in L.A. and attempts to sweep her off her feet in a later season. Zuniga got her start in slasher films. Her first role was in the 1982 film The Dorm That Dripped Blood. After Melrose, she was on the 2003-2012 to 2012 CW series One Tree Hill as Victoria Davis. Joe Reynolds was in a hot and heavy relationship with Jake Hansen on Melrose Place. Jake, played by Grant Show, was the character that enabled this spinoff by having a sexual affair with the teenage Kelly Taylor on 90210. Looking past his affair with the teen girl, Jake generally is billed as a good guy and an all-American work-for-yourself type. He rides motorcycles and can never resist a damsel in distress. Grant Show went on to star in the 2017 to 2022 Dynasty reboot as the oil tycoon Blake Carrington. Sydney Andrews, played by Laura Layton, is this episode's focus. Sid, as she is commonly referred to on the show, is Jane's little sister, who officially comes to Melrose Place, the apartment complex, after Jane's divorce from Michael in episode 2 of season 2. Sid always had a crush on Michael, spurred on by envy of her perfect older sister Jane, who not only married a doctor, but is a fashion designer with model looks. Sid was neglected and ignored by her family, specifically her sister. She was made to feel invisible and foolish, so she latched on to her romantic notions of Michael and attached being a grown-up woman to being with him. Leighton went on after Melrose Place to play the role of Ashley Marin on the 2010 to 2017 series Pretty Little Liars. This is an iconic role, in Pretty Little Liars, Ashley is the mother of Hannah Marin, played by Ashley Benson. Ashley Marin is a sultry divorcee who steals money from the bank she works at to keep her and her daughter living in the lifestyle they have become accustomed to post her divorce. She has an affair with the local police detective to protect her daughter from being charged with drunk driving and does everything she can to protect Hannah from being implicated in a murder. Pretty Little Liars was rebooted in 2022 with a new cast. I recommend the original and the reboot. Back to Melrose and Sydney. Sid had a sense of style that went beyond her designer sister's wardrobe. Her looks were theatrically adorable. She wore sexy like Jessica Rabbit and gingham like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. In the season I am focusing on for this episode, season two, Sydney goes through a change. She initially shows up in cut-off denim shorts worn with a sheer floral ruffle blouse, but by the end of the season, she is wearing sophisticated blazers with flirty skirts and matching handbags. The evolution of Sydney's style over the whole series has been noted by her wiki fandom page, where she is eventually compared to Anne Margaret. 
That comparison is apt, not just because of her red hair, but also because of her red-hot sexuality paired with an untouchable innocence. The woman I associate Sydney with the most is Kitty March, as played by Joan Bennett in Scarlet Street. These two characters belong to each other. I see myself in both of them. Just like Kitty, my first experience of love was with a pimp boyfriend, one who famously received the longest prison sentence for a pimp to date. Daquan Sawyer is his name. I, like Sydney, was an unbelievably romantic and vulnerable girl even as I became a woman. I also hated my sister, the perfect one, who was held in high esteem while I was nothing more than a burden. I left home at 14 because of that and many more complicated reasons. I inevitably found my way back to my sister, who I now consider to be my abuser, but that didn't stop me from hitting every other kind of abusive relationship along the way, like the aforementioned pimp boyfriend. I sympathize with Sydney because I feel her neglect in my bones, and because, like her, I was the younger sister that was kept around like a prop, but never really valued. You will soon come to know the extent of the damage Sydney does to Jane, but I would ask that you remember that she is in many ways a child to Jane's adult. She also managed to become a fan favorite, regardless of her wicked ways. I, for one, always root for the hooker, regardless of whether or not her heart is gold. The costume designer on Melrose Place was Denise Wingate. Wingate also costumed the 1999 adaptation of Cruel Intentions, including Sarah Michelle Gellar's cocaine cross and corset. Most recently, she did the Laurel Canyon looks of Daisy Jones and the Six, the recent film based on the book of the same title that is loosely based on Fleetwood Mac. That's a pretty impressive career that spans three decades of influential style. The hair and makeup on Melrose consist of 26 names over the show's entire run. I'm not going to list them here, but given the iconography of hair and makeup on the show, I will refer my audience to the IMDb page to check the names out for themselves. There are 31 episodes in season two, so I will brush over a lot of them and pick up scenes here and there from key moments to discuss. There is one episode that I will talk about in its entirety, but for the most part, I'm doing an overview of Sydney's storylines and character development over one season. I should start by saying that the basic premise of the show is following the lives of characters that are connected by their place of residence, an apartment complex on Melrose Place, a street in West Hollywood off of Melrose Avenue although it is actually filmed in Santa Clarita. The apartment complex is a Spanish-style courtyard building with a community pool. It's also one of the few TV apartment complexes that is realistically affordable for the young adults of very incomes it houses. The cast ranges from young, the late teens of Sydney, to older, the early 30s of Michael but it mostly consists of 20-somethings during their first foray into adulthood. Sydney first arrives to care for her recently separated sister Jane in episode 2 of season 2, but she is treated by Jane as a burden, a pest 
that is no help at all. By episode 6, Sydney has inserted herself into Michael's life, and by extension, Kimberly's, the woman Michael cheated on Jane with, and whom he is now living with in their Malibu beach house. In episode 7, entitled Flirting with Disaster, Sydney seduces her longtime object of affection, Michael. She shows up at Michael and Kimberly's beach house under the guise of getting Michael to co-sign on her new apartment at Melrose Place. Kimberly is conveniently out of town. Michael agrees, knowing it will piss off Jane and getting joy from that fact. Sydney is wearing a sheer floral brown and plum ruffle blouse with a matching brown mini skirt and low-heeled pumps. Her hair is done up child beauty queen style and a faux buffant exploding with curls that epitomize stage-ready perfection. Her makeup is very of the moment. Her lipstick is Advil coating color red, paired with a slightly muted brown eyeshadow and mascara on her top lashes only. Simple liner that doesn't wing or do any other tricks emphasizes her eyes instead of looking like costume jewelry for the eyelid. Sydney disappears into the bedroom when Michael has his back turned to her. When he calls her name, she says, I'm in here, Michael. He follows her voice into his bedroom, the one he shares with Kimberly. She slowly unbuttons her blouse. It doesn't take Michael long to go in for the kill. He kisses her and then pushes her hard down on the bed. Sydney's delight at this show of force proof she has power to elicit a strong response in him, is palpable. The scene cuts away, but it is quite clear what happens next. Sydney's accomplishment of bedding Michael, an older man, is the first rush of power she gets from her sexuality as a young woman, specifically a young woman who has been passed over and pushed aside. More universally, the discovery of sex and the absolute joy and pleasure of that kind of attention, and hopefully satisfaction, is beyond intoxicating. Sid is so much like Kitty, giving over to base animal instinct, but with the rosy tint of romance. It is easy to see how turned around and drunk off love little Sydney is at this point. This is where she cuts her femme fatale teeth for the first time, not knowing that she is the victim, but is going to be blamed as the villain from here on out. When I first lost my virginity, it was far from powerful or romantic, borderline rape, or actually rape, just not at gunpoint. But I was drugged and only 14. I remember that not days or weeks, but months after, I became aware for the first time of the power I had sexually. It took me years to use that to anyone else's advantage but men. But when I did learn, I had a hell of a lot of fun. I can relate to Sydney's eventual obsession with being a housewife. I too wanted to be actually loved and not just used. The problem is that the paradox of power that comes with sexuality includes the brutality of the patriarchy. By default of my gender, my job was service, and I had to choose which kind I wanted to perform. The one that brought me pleasure and power, or the one that made me a good wife. I chose the former. I guess now I choose neither. 
but I still live in that little girl land of romance. A as-of-yet, unrequited, Wuthering Heights kind of love is my dream. I think it was Sydney's and Kitty's, too. Instead of a man who would die for her, Sydney keeps going back to a man who will eventually try to kill her. Kimberly catches Michael and Sydney in bed and tells Jane, who slams the door in Kimberly's face. When Jane confronts Sid at her work, the local dive bar Shooters, where a lot of the action of the show takes place when the gang isn't at the apartment complex, Sydney initially denies that she slept with Michael, but then, in a tearful moment that highlights the vulnerability and desperation Sydney has been acting from, she admits it. Sydney says, Nobody has been paying any attention to me since I've been out here. Jane replies, You little bitch, you wanted to sleep with him, didn't you? Sydney says, I don't know, maybe I just wanted to be wanted. The last line is the most tearful. In Season 2, Episode 11, entitled Collision Course, Sydney is making friends at work, one of whom invites her to a Hollywood A-list party. Sid goes to the party, but not before asking Jane to borrow a dress to wear to it. Jane is a designer, after all. She does have an impeccable wardrobe, but Sydney has style in her bones. She is a fashion icon, whereas Jane is simply put together. Get the distinction? Sid is just asking Jane this because she wants her to see that people like and value her enough to invite her to a party. Even though Sid fucked Jane's ex-husband, she still feels victimized by Jane. Jane slams the door in her face, as is her custom. Sydney shows up at the Hollywood Hills party in a floral number that emphasizes the just-off-the-bus, sheep-ready-for-the-slaughter thing that Sid's got going for her. She is introduced to Lauren Etheridge, played by Christiane Alfonso. Lauren is a Hollywood madam to the stars in the same vein as Heidi Fleiss. After all, this season aired in 1993, which was the same year Fleiss was arrested. So Sid's storyline was topical on top of being tragic. Later, Lauren comes to visit Sid at her waitressing job at Shooters and asks if she would like to go out with one of the Hollywood bigwigs from last night's party. Completely flabbergasted and flattered, Sydney agrees. The first thing she is excited about is what her sister will say. Once again, trying to win love by proving she is in fact lovable. The date is set up as a double with her work friend and another guy. This is meant to ease Sid into turning tricks. My desperation to be loved by my family sent me into the arms of a lot of people who didn't care, but who at least were there. I just wanted a family so badly. Like Sid, I was easily exploited. It's from this background that I see and relate to Sydney. I recognize her fire and her fight, and I moon over her romanticism because it's so pure and sweet. Sydney ends up canceling the date because Michael and Kimberly get into a car crash on Mulholland Drive. The location is an assumption on my part. 
Michael drank a lot, specifically champagne, at the romantic dinner that led up to his proposal to Kimberly and then the crash. Sydney rushes to the hospital, forces her way into the hospital room, and says through sobs, I love you so much, Michael. He says, in a whisper, this is all your fault. He blames the whole thing on her. This is what makes Sydney a femme fatale. She is made to bear the brunt of the man's actions. If you remember last week's episode, I discussed the definition. The dictionary definition of femme fatale is a woman who is likely to cause distress or disaster to a man who becomes involved with her. But my definition is a woman who is free in any way she can be. She is a cowboy, pursuing her right to freedom and happiness at any and all costs. She does this not by mimicking a man, but by being a fully embodied woman. A woman who is made to be accountable for men's actions, but refuses. Sydney refuses that accountability by loving Michael. Her misunderstanding of freedom is that it's equal to love. The romantic child in her is still alive, which is beautiful, but it confuses her pursuit of happiness and freedom. The world wasn't built for the romance in women's hearts. It was made to destroy it. Michael was drunk when he crashed the car in the accident that led to Kimberly's death, making Michael's blood alcohol level a matter of homicide. He convinces Matt to change the records before they reach the police. Michael is off the hook for murder, but left crippled. His ability to walk eventually returns, but not before he nearly loses his job and gains a debilitating pill addiction. During this time, Jane lets Michael stay with her until a bed opens up at a decent rehab facility. Jane has started dating another man, one who she seems to really care about. Meanwhile, Sid has started turning tricks full-time. She has quickly risen in the ranks and is now one of Lauren's best girls. On Christmas Day, she decides to get out of the oldest profession. Lauren comes to Sid's apartment to hand-deliver a gift basket. It's then when Sid breaks the news. Lauren says, Gift baskets are making a comeback, I hear. All proceeds benefit Planned Parenthood. She laughs at her own joke. Sydney hands over a wad of cash that she earned from the date the previous night. She says, This is all of it. I'm giving you all of it because I'm quitting. I'm getting out. But I realize I owe you for the dresses and the coke. I just wanted to settle up and move on. I was going to call you today, later. Lauren says, No further explanation needed. I understand completely. It's a shame, but I guess we'll all survive. She gives the money back to Sydney and says, You may be needing this. You earned every penny of what I gave you and then some. Good luck, Sid. When I left Daquan, the pimp boyfriend from my teen years, he showed up at my apartment with a gift basket on Valentine's Day. I tried to close the door in his face, but he forced his way in and beat the shit out of me like Johnny did to Kitty in Scarlet Street. He even kicked me when I was on the ground. Eventually, a neighbor called the police, probably saving my life. Like Kitty, I turned the police away. But they did make him leave. 
I was packed and gone by the morning. I left Chicago and moved to California. I was 17 years old. Sid's fate, at first glance, appeared to be much more favorable than mine. But not long after that, a John picks her up at Shooter's, saying he was sent by Lauren. Sid couldn't resist the money and ended up at the center of a sting. She is arrested, charged with pandering, and forced to call Michael to bail her out. He does, but not without calling her a whore and breaking her heart all over again. That Sydney-branded shine is starting to dull because of the endless rejections and humiliations. Now that Michael has this bit of information about Sydney, he uses it to blackmail her into setting up Jane's new boyfriend in a honey trap utilizing Sydney's former co-working call girl girlfriend. The setup is filmed and the video is delivered to Jane's door with the hope of breaking the couple up so Michael can move in. Forced into a corner, Sydney tells Jane everything. She confesses to being a prostitute and helping to set up her boyfriend. The honesty bonds the sisters and screws over Michael. Jane forces him out of her house, and he has to go back to the beach house he shared with Kimberly before her death, or should I say, murder. It is there that he devolves into suicidality and heavy pill use. Feeling guilty... And never without endless love for Michael, Sydney begins to check in on him. One day, she finds him nearly dead from an overdose. She takes him to the hospital, saving his life. It's then that she hears him talking in his sleep about the blood alcohol test and the altered results. Sydney puts two and two together, and after further investigation, realizes the full story. When Michael is feeling better, she blackmails him into marrying her. In episode 24, entitled Love Mancini Style, Michael takes Sydney on their honeymoon. He chooses a remote Northern California location where he can murder his bride without witnesses. They stay in a fairy book stone cabin with wildflowers surrounding the property, which Sydney joyfully picks for Michael. The location and vibe of this episode strikes a similar chord as the 1956 Doris Day noir, Julie. The plot is essentially the same, honeymoon murder by a crazed husband, but the motivations are miles apart. Either way, the stonework of the cabin, Sydney's innocence, and later her outfit, feel like a direct reference to Julie and Doris Day. I have also heard it pointed out that this is a common dateline murder scenario. That is thanks to the girls over at the Melrose Place rewatch podcast, Bitch Slap, which I highly recommend. Back at the countryside cabin, Michael is putting poison in Sydney's snifter of brandy. This has a very Miss Marple feel to it, or for us Jessica Fletcher enthusiasts, Murder She Wrote which, coincidentally, was filmed in Northern California. Sydney, who I think was wise to Michael's murderous intentions from the get, throws the brandy into the fish she is cooking for dinner to season it. The flambe is a bust, because Michael snuffs out the fire to avoid eating the poison-laced dinner himself. The next day, 
the couple trade in their cozy cabin for a tent. That night, Michael and Sydney are talking by the campfire before bed. Sydney describes her first sexual fantasy. It was about Michael. She saw him and Jane together and imagined it was her in Jane's place. It is such an innocent envy that drew Sydney to Michael. She looks at him and says she knows he will love her eventually. Her devotion is indeed on par with the Bronte sisters' heroine, just as Kitty's was in Scarlet Street. Michael says, Do you think someone like me even knows what love is, Sydney? Sydney asks, So, it's the ridge tomorrow, referring to the morning's planned hiking spot. Michael says, They say you can see the whole valley from up there. Sydney says, Sounds neat. That line, delivered the night before the hike, on which Michael is planning on pushing her over a cliff, is fucking adorable. Her devotion to him, foolish as it may be, has a grit to it that adds to her sparkle. In the morning, they make it to the top of the ridge. Sydney is wearing an outfit that is straight out of Doris Day's wardrobe for Julie. Pleated white pants, a pink sweater with a white vest over it, and a pink silk scarf tied in a bow around her neck. She tops the look off with a hat that is a cross between a bucket hat and a bonnet. She stands on the edge, Michael behind her, bracing for what she knows Michael has planned. But he doesn't do it. He can't bring himself to kill her. The couple returns to the cabin to find that Matt, desperately afraid that Michael was going to kill Sydney, had employed the full force of the local police to search for the couple. As usual, Sydney pretends that there was no such plot and happily protects Michael to her and everyone else's detriment. It would be great if the men we love didn't actually murder us. But considering the evidence I have accumulated over my lifetime, they usually do, even if those murders are just a million little deaths over a long period of time. Accountability and the willingness to rebirth, grow, change, and learn seem to be lacking in the men I have encountered. Some of those men were good guys, but many of them were monsters who went on to gravely injure other women, and in the case of Daquan, young girls. I carry the weight of their pain right along with the weight of my own. Sid and Michael go on to find their stride. Sid takes the place of her Hollywood madam, Lauren, when Lauren goes to jail. The confidence Sid gets from making money, paired with her help with Michael's career, creates a power couple energy between the two. But just as happiness falls over the beach house, a specter from the past appears. It's Kimberly, as played by Marsha Cross. Kimberly returns not dead and ready to take her place at Michael's side. Her reappearance isn't just shocking, it renders Sidney's blackmail null and void. Michael throws Sydney out the very next day. Sid is forced to return to her Melrose Place apartment, alone and humiliated. She winds up dancing at a strip club. 
She takes her power back even in this position by putting on a Dietrich-style persona, including a top hat and tie, and making her stage name Jane, a jab at her sister. Her power sources always seem to derive from Hollywood lore. By the season's end, Sid winds up streetwalking on Sunset, after a humiliating run-in with Michael and all of the Melrose Place male occupants at the strip club she was dancing at. She then gets beat up by a gang of co-workers and has to go to the emergency room, where her attending physician is none other than Michael's return-from-the-dead fiancé Kimberly. But Kimberly didn't come back to love and honor Michael. She came back to destroy him. And seeing Sydney in this state inspires a deep sympathy in her. She pulls Sydney into her long con, which has now been accelerated to a quick murder plot. The season ends with Kimberly running Michael down in the street in Jane's stolen cabriolet convertible, effectively setting Jane up and keeping Sid and Kimberly off the hook. Of course, that's not what happens. Michael doesn't die. Jane is ultimately exonerated of any suspicion, and it's Sydney who is left without an alibi. Sydney eventually dies in her own car accident in season five, a loss that, if not for the addition of Lisa Rinna to the cast that season, would have destroyed the show. But I will get to Lisa Rinna as well as Heather Locklear in later episodes. During the run of the show, Sydney Andrews plays every role available for a woman in America. She embodies the bratty little girl, the working woman, the blackmailing temptress, the Hollywood madam, the high-class call girl, the streetwalker, the girl Friday, the avenging angel, and on it goes. All of these roles were epitomized in the 1930s and 1940s in film. Sydney is an iconic character because she is built from the bones of iconic women. Women like Joan Bennett in Scarlet Street, Doris Day in Julie, Rita Hayworth in Gilda, Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz, and classic literature heroines which helped form the archetypes of the roles she would later channel. For me, Sydney represents the confusion I felt as a girl expected to behave like a woman. The world didn't allow me to be a child, but somehow that didn't erase my innocence or romanticism. It was never completely beaten out of me, even when I was literally beaten. Sydney and Kitty seem the same to me. Their rage seems justified given that fact, and so does mine. It exists to protect the magic that lives in the hearts of little girls. Thank you for listening to Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures. Please like and subscribe to the podcast and follow me on Instagram at Window Dressing Podcast for more content. I'm Madeline Jane Auble.